0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Staffing the American government is a monumental task, a fact clearly not lost on President Joe Biden, who had a thousand staff ready to go on his first day in office. So where are all of his ambassadors? And what are the risks of having so few in post? And defining the boundaries of oceans is not straightforward. Not even the number of oceans in the world is widely agreed. We look into why it's all more than just words and lines on a map. First up, though... When American markets open today after the long weekend, investors will be watching Chinese tech giants closely. Last week, Didi, a Chinese ride-hailing app, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It was the biggest American initial public offering of a Chinese company since the e-commerce behemoth Alibaba, listed seven years ago. But then Chinese regulators put the brakes on, first announcing an investigation into Didi's data practices and then pulling it from China's app stores. Didi isn't the first firm to fall foul of fickle regulators. Far from it. As its big tech companies stretch their wings in international markets, China's leadership seems set on bringing them back to Earth.
1: So the Cyberspace Administration of China has put out a series of announcements over the past couple days. Didi listed in New York on June 30th Two days later, the regulator said that it was investigating the company. Two days later, the regulator said that it would drop the DD app from the app store.
0: Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor and is based in Hong Kong.
1: So this is obviously a devastating development for the company. It can no longer acquire new customers. And it's coming just a few days after the $4.4 billion IPO.
0: So do we know exactly why the the Chinese authorities are investigating Didi here? What are the rules they've apparently broken?
1: We don't know that much about these infractions at this point. What we do know is that Didi collects a lot of data. Like many other tech businesses, it's a data powerhouse. It does about 40 million transactions per day. Each ride is video recorded and audio recorded. It's running AI inside these cabs to make sure the driver's not falling asleep. And it does share data with third parties where it can, where it's allowed to do that. So we do know a lot about how DD procures data and some types of the data that it has. But outside of that... We just don't really know that much more about what's going on. Of course, lots of people speculate that there's a lot more to this than just a simple data violation. What what do you mean? What more might there be? So there's been a crackdown on Chinese tech for the past several months. A lot of the huge Chinese internet groups have been targeted by regulators. There's been a lot of investigations, some fines. And we know that Didi has been kind of in the target of some of these regulators for a while. At the same time, it looks like Didi rushed this IPO. That seems like it could have irritated regulators. It's possible that the regulators did not want it to do an IPO in the U.S. until some of these problems were worked out. So it does appear that putting out something like an investigation into a company that has just gone public is really specifically designed to hurt the company and hurt its investors as well. And Didi isn't alone here in, in, in drawing the regulator's eye. So this isn't just Didi. A day after Didi's app was pulled from app stores, the regulator announced that there were two other companies that were also under investigation and could no longer pick up new users When you look at the companies that have been targeted here, they have one striking thing in common. They all listed in the U.S. over the past month. One is a trucking cargo company. Another is a professional talent search company. It's quite striking that the regulator would go after specifically three companies that have just listed in the U.S. It's it's a very strong message that they were not following along with what the regulator wanted them to do. And this is all just really kicking off now, or or were there warning signs? Well, you know, if you go back to October and November of last year, this is where the story begins. So Ant Group, the fintech company ran by Jack Ma, they were preparing to do a $37 billion IPO between Shanghai and, and Hong Kong. And that was killed at the last moment just because Jack Ma made some comments that irritated the financial regulators. Since last October, this has really snowballed into something that has wrapped up a lot of different tech companies. And the regulators... From the markets regulator to the financial regulators, and now the, you know, the cyberspace regulator, they all seem to be taking their, their shots at, at these companies. But what do you think the regulators
0: are trying to do here? Are they just exerting power or trying to shape the industry in some way?
1: I think there are good intentions behind some of the, the regulatory actions, just like we see in places like the U.S. and Europe, where regulators want to protect things like personal data. But it's, it's a very uncertain environment where it's hard to tell what's going on. And there's a different aspect of this in China. And a lot of it is simply showing everybody who's boss. A lot of this is about total control over what's going on online in China. Of course, you know, the Communist Party does not want a freewheeling Internet. They're really showing that right now with all these regulatory actions.
0: But there's something of attention there. China wants its big champions to, you know, have global businesses. But at the same time, it seems to be hobbling some of its champions here. It's shooting itself in the foot.
1: I think it's up for debate how much the local regulators and the Communist Party want to see these companies become global champions. There's a question over what type of data they share with overseas stock exchanges when they list. That's a very contentious point right now with Chinese regulators on shore. And it, it could be partially behind some of these regulatory actions we've seen in the past couple days. I don't know if it's a given that the global reach of these companies is a good thing from the Communist Party's view.
0: And as this crackdown has, has played out, how have these Chinese companies responded? Are, are they falling into line in, in the way that the party seemingly would like?
1: Well, Didi hasn't said a whole lot. In one of their first statements, they sincerely thanked the regulator for taking these actions. I think they want to appear very compliant. If you look at what's gone on with other tycoons that have been targeted over the past couple months, the general trend is that these guys just kind of disappear and don't make a lot of noise.
0: And what does all this mean then for for future Chinese listings in in Western markets and for would-be investors in them? This looks like you're getting involved in an an ugly fight that's going on in China, really.
1: It's not good at all. If you're an investor in the U.S. and a big Chinese tech company is selling shares anytime soon, it's going to be hard not to think about the potential of getting clobbered by the regulators just a couple days after the IPO. I think there's a bigger wake-up call right now for a lot of... Overseas investors and kind of thinking about what the real nature of these companies and how free they are to operate without overwhelming control from the government. And I I think that could depress valuations of these companies in the future. You know, attracting talent is going to be difficult as well. So these companies have soaked up the best global talent for a decade And they've had great results. But at this point, the prospects of becoming a tech boss in China, they don't look very good. So I think there's a lot of downside from what we're seeing right now.
0: Don, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economistcom intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
2: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
3: Repeat after me. I, state your name. I, Ed Romero. I, John D. Negroponte. I, Corrine Claven Boggs. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. Ambassador, congratulations.
0: They might be career foreign service officials. They might be political appointees. They might just be big campaign donors given what's seen to be a cushy number. But the role of America's ambassadors can prove crucial. The administration's far-flung proxies cement relationships with states, territories, and intergovernmental organizations. They're a diplomatic first line of
3: defense. So when those posts
0: stand empty for months or more, it's a worrying sign.
3: Joe Biden is moving very slowly to get key people in position across the government, and and you see it particularly with his ambassadors. He hasn't put names forward, and at the same time, the Senate is moving very slowly to confirm the people that he has nominated.
0: James Bennett is a visiting senior editor at The Economist.
3: He has yet to nominate ambassadors to a number of America's key allies and to the capitals of some of its adversaries. And why is he finding it so hard to get those in place? Every president struggles with staffing their government. Biden is, I think, being subject to all the usual crosswinds that presidents have to contend with. There are lengthy background checks that have to be run on every possible appointment, but there's also a tremendous amount of politics involved. Beyond the internal issues that the Biden administration has, they have to contend with a Senate that is always very slow to confirm appointees. And particularly this time around, the Senate's been slow off the mark because of the insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th, followed by the second impeachment of Donald Trump. These sorts of things have preoccupied the Senate. And what are the consequences of leaving those posts open for this long? You know, it's hard to measure the impact of a missing ambassador. I think a good example in the negative of what you miss when you don't have an ambassador in place is that the administration was very slow to react as tensions were building in Jerusalem in advance of the last exchange of blows between Hamas and the Israeli government. I think there's an argument to be made. It's very hard always to establish a counterfactual, but if the ambassador had been in place, that person would have had the influence to raise the importance of that gathering storm to the administration and possibly get them to intervene in advance of it. As it was, they were slow to react, reacted after the fact, they sent a deputy assistant secretary of state, who's the one person they had available, over to try to deal with it. But by then, a lot of damage had been done.
0: And all presidents presumably face a lot of this same gummed up machinery. I mean, how does Mr. Biden's record compare with previous presidents?
3: Biden's record is mixed. And it's surprising because he knew what he was facing. He knows how slow this process is. And he has senior aides who are experienced in dealing with it as well. And they did one thing that was really wise on day one when Joe Biden was sworn in. He had a thousand appointees who don't require Senate confirmation, a thousand in that category of appointees ready to go. And They got him started right away. But since then, he has moved very slowly. And I think it's partly a function of what happens with every administration. They get in. It's a complicated process appointing anybody. And at the meantime, you're dealing with crises and actually trying to run the government. And personnel decisions just become easy to put off. As a result, Biden is now tracking, yes, ahead of Donald Trump in that Biden is closing in on about 100 appointees. Confirmed, But he's well behind where Barack Obama was at this point and well behind where George W. Bush was. Almost 100 may sound like a good number, but that's out of 1,200 appointees he's supposed to make that require Senate confirmation. And in all, he's supposed to appoint 4,000 people to the government.
0: And what about the appointees that he's picking? Are they in keeping with what prior presidents
3: have done? I think Biden's making a real effort to try to restore a bit of balance to the ambassadorial core. Donald Trump was a president who particularly liked to reward donors and campaign allies with ambassadorships. He raised the proportion of such appointees. He raised the proportion of political allies that he put in the job. Joe Biden and his secretary of state, Tony Blinken, have made a point so far of appointing foreign service officers. That's very good for the morale of the State Department. It's also probably very good for foreign policy because these are people who tend to know their way around the block. But at the same time, they're trying to do something about the diversity of the ambassadorial ranks. A study done in January showed only five out of 189 American ambassadors were black, and they're trying to address that tremendous disparity as well. And those sorts of factors also add to the complexity of the decision-making.
0: So how to simplify the decision-making? How much of this is a structural problem, since every
3: president seems to face it to one degree or another? Reducing the total number of appointments that presidents have to make, eliminating some of these positions entirely, particularly some that go unfilled across an entire administration, which I think is probably evidence they're not that important. And reducing the numbers that require Senate confirmation would, I think, increase accountability on the presidents and on each administration to really do something to improve the efficacy of government. Joe Biden has a really ambitious domestic agenda. He also wants to conduct a very activist foreign policy. Republicans have very successfully run since the 1980s on the proposition that more government was bad for you. Democrats believe that government has a critical role to play, but what you've seen in democratic administration after democratic administration is a real, I think, failure to grapple with what frustrates a lot of Americans about the tremendous bureaucracy and the lack of responsiveness they feel like they see to their needs. And so both to carrying out his agenda and to deal with this underlying ambition that Biden has to demonstrate that government is a powerful force for good in people's lives it's really important for him to run an efficient and an effective administration and to do that he really needs to have his people in place Thanks very much for joining us James. thank you for having me Jason.
0: It's a question you'd think would have a straight answer. How many oceans are there? But it depends who you ask. You might argue there's just one. Others say there are four or five. Things got more confused after the National Geographic Society announced recently that they're adding a new ocean to their maps. The Southern Ocean encircles Antarctica and will be given the same status and typeface as the Arctic, Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific oceans. But some argue the body of water shouldn't have full ocean status.
2: So the Southern Ocean around Antarctica was formed when Antarctica and South America moved apart around 30 million years ago.
0: Caroline Carter is The Economist's deputy Asia news editor.
2: Because the ocean has no visible northern boundary, locating it and mapping it has always been contentious.
0: So what is it that makes an ocean an ocean?
2: Most of the water on Earth is part of one huge interconnected system— This is sometimes called the world ocean or the global ocean. But mapmakers divide that one ocean into different zones, including oceans and seas. At school, you might have been taught that there are four oceans, the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Typically, oceans are surrounded by continents and seas are surrounded by smaller bits of land. But where two bits of water converge at a point where there's no land, then mapmakers must look at the conditions in the water to decide where to put the boundary. So scientists generally agree that the waters of the Southern Ocean are different to the waters in the south of the Pacific, Atlantic and Indian Oceans. How so? One feature which is used to define the edge of the Southern Ocean is the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, which swells water clockwise from west to east around Antarctica. The waters south of the current are colder and less salty than the waters to the north. This has allowed a unique Southern Ocean ecosystem to evolve. It's rich in plant and animal life, including krill and penguins, whales, and albatrosses. And because Antarctica and the Southern Ocean are so icy, this region is particularly susceptible to the effects of climate change.
0: So why has the the Southern Ocean question been so fraught?
2: So the International Hydrographic Organization produces a book called The Limits of Oceans and Seas, which is supposed to provide a blueprint for cartographers to work from, to produce maps. So far, there's been four editions. All of them show the Southern Ocean in slightly different ways. In 1928, the first edition showed the Southern Ocean reaching as far north as Africa, Australia and South America. The second edition in 1937 moved the Southern Ocean's northern limits south, so the ocean no longer touched land. In the third edition in 1953, the Southern Ocean was omitted entirely. The IHO argued that because the northern boundary of the Southern Ocean moves with the seasons, there was no justification for distinguishing the Southern Ocean on its maps. So that edition showed the Atlantic, Indian and Pacific Oceans reaching all the way down to Antarctica. In 2000, when the fourth edition of Limits on Oceans and Seas was due to be published, IHO members agreed to name the waters below the 60th parallel, the Southern Ocean. But other disputes between members, such as what to call the Sea of Japan, stopped the fourth edition from being formally ratified, which leaves the IHO stuck in 1953 when the Southern Ocean didn't exist at all.
0: So for whom does it exist?
2: National Geographic, which recently promoted the ocean, argues that identifying the Southern Ocean and naming it as an ocean on its maps will help efforts to conserve this unique ecosystem. So next time we open an atlas, take a look at how it treats the Southern Ocean. There's a lot of variety, because we still don't have a consensus about how many oceans there are.
0: Caroline, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks very much, Jason. Goodbye.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.
2: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.